0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello, I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, um, which organized today's event. This is one of over 700 programs at the Commonwealth Club that have been done since the pandemic began. And uh, just wanted to, first of all, thank you all for your interest in our series of programs. And also uh, for those of you who are watching online on YouTube or something later, um, we hope that you're enjoying are continuing to bring you uh, the lectures that we brought you live in San Francisco, but now we bring it across the world through the Internet. So today's uh, program is uh, Andrew Nagorski. His latest book is Saving Freud. Uh, He's written many books. Um, Many of you probably know them. Uh, But today we're going to talk about this book on what happened to Sigmund Freud uh, when he was an old man and uh, the Anschluss in Austria happened. Um, but we're going to go with a little bit of background first. So, first of all, thank you very much for joining us, Andrew. This is uh, a pleasure. Thank you, George. My pleasure, too. So, um, my first question is, you've written on a lot of other subjects uh, where the the framework is similar, um, but you haven't taken on a subject like Freud uh, in particular. So, how did you run across the idea uh, to, to do this book? And how long ago was it? Well,
2: it was... As I tell a number of people, I've written several books, but I'm always, when I finish one book and thinking about the next one, I'm always at a loss. What's going to be a topic that will, first of all, hold my interest, and then you obviously hope will hold readers' interest? And I'm never sure what that will be. And I spend a lot of time in what I call my walkabout phase, which consists of often Reading a lot, uh, whether it's diaries, letters, uh, memoirs, and 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 see what's what stories are there in, in a seemingly well mined area, of course, the early 20th century, 20s, the 30s, the rise, rise of Hitler, uh, that that it that will be give us some fresh take. And when I was this was a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago or so. I read a memoir by Stefan Zweig, who was an mm-hmm. Austrian Jewish writer at the beginning of the 20th century. Probably the most popular writer of his of his time, he wrote a lot of novels, novellas, very light, entertaining but insightful literature. And he wrote this memoir, the w- "A World of Yesterday," that is very moving. and And it, he grew up in the same Vienna that Freud grew up in, and then he met Freud in Vienna. And he, and he describes some of his impressions of him in Vienna. And, and then in 1934, which is a year after Hitler has taken b- power in Germany, he decides to get out as an Austrian Jew. He says, you know, this is this this is not going to end well for any of us. And he, and and he ends up in London in 1938. And the next mention of Freud, he's meeting Freud shortly after Freud arrives in Vienna. I mean, in London, excuse me after narrowly escaping the nazis and i thought well first of all why did freud stick around so long Hmm. why did he almost get trapped by by the Anschluss? and and then he mentioned some of the friends who helped to engineer this extrication of freud and it got me into exploring freud his, his his entourage and to tell the story and to understand why a man who was so insightful about so much seemed to have been somewhat blindsided by events and how it would directly affect him. I went back and began to explore Freud, the Freud, the man, Freud, the scholar. And uh, I came to be just fascinated by him. And luckily one thing about him, he wrote letters to everyone, Mm -hmm. nonstop. There were hundreds and hundreds of letters aside from the various memoirs and and other writings. And that gives you really an insight into his mind at the time, not in in retrospect. And that was, I, I would say, the primary resource that convinced me that not only was there a story to tell, but i have the, I have the materials that would allow me to tell it, tell it in a very vivid way.
1: Yes, and it is told very vividly. And it's interesting that you say that you see into his mind as it was at the time. I mean, he, he still wrote to different people differently, um, you know, as you make clear in your, in your book, um, he was very clever about what he was writing. So he was, he was completely conscious of what he was writing. He wasn't unconsciously writing his part of the story. Uh, so so uh, it's, I think let's uh, try to set the stage a little bit because uh, Freud as a younger man is different than Freud as an older man. Uh, I think one of the things is important for everybody to understand, and your book makes it perfectly clear, at the time that he eventually left in 1938, he, he was 82 years old. He'd been undergoing jaw surgeries for uh, a decade or longer that were debilitating from a physical point of view. And then he basically stayed in his house, uh, which was also his office, for most of that time. So he wasn't moving around that much. Um, so his, his um, wanting to stay where he was is a little bit more understandable than if he was 40 years old and, and, and on his way up.
2: Yes, it it definitely was uh, more understandable, and he often cited his age and that that cancer of the jaw, which had developed, of course, from his famous cigar smoking, mm-hmm. as reason why he didn't want to move. But also, he had he had spent all his life in Vienna, except for the first four years as a child, when mm-hmm. when they had come from what is now the Czech Republic, and and he, although he would complain about Vienna a lot, of, a lot, he was very methodical in, in, in his lifestyle and 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 where he even went for his daily walks the barber who came to to trim his beard mm-hmm. the cafes he went to and he loved routine and here was a man who was a very revolutionary thinker for his time but he was a very conservative person in his personal habits and that that's also one of the intriguing things about freud mm-hmm. so he really resisted the notion he said the idea of up at, you know uh, moving now starting a new life elsewhere he just just didn't want to hear of it, hear of it and for that reason to a large extent he kept hearing this bad news and he understood it on one level but on another level he didn't want to understand the implications for himself and his family
1: yeah and it, at the risk of making him sound like a provincial uh, in in vienna he wasn't he had an international following he was in touch with people in many languages. How many languages did he did he himself speak? Do you know? I mean, you, you talk a little bit. Well, about he,
2: that he, I mean, he his, his French got pretty good, although he was very self-conscious about it. His English was not bad mm-hmm. uh, and he was able to write. Uh, those were his, his, his two main languages, but he also had some Italian. He loved to go to Italy when he was younger and mm-hmm. he loved exploring antiquities. Uh, so yeah, like most central Europeans, he had he could he could navigate in in at least uh, about three languages.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, here he is, and he's got uh, at at the end in the 30s, uh, he has followers in England and America and everything, and a group of people eventually became the ones that saved him. But let's go back. That's the main part of the story. But let's go back for a little while and talk about how Freud became Freud. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, he was he, he was outside the mainstream almost the entire time, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: he was, he yeah. was, and he was a medical student in, at the university of Vienna. As he himself said, he was not terribly diligent. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, it looked like he was just going to, in, he was going to have a, a, a academic career working in a laboratory neurology became his area. Uh, and but all the, at the same time, he wanted to somehow to make a mark for himself. From his early age, he protests, for instance, to his fiance Martha, who later becomes his wife, that I'm not one who's looking for fame and so forth. But it's, it's a little bit of the case of someone who protests too much mm-hmm. because he's, he is looking for something very distinctive. And at first, he actually thinks it's cocaine. Uh, he experiments with cocaine. He thinks he 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 had a friend who was who was desperately ill and, and addicted to morphine. He thought cocaine will wean him off it until he realized this is just another addiction.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so when when he realizes this is this is not a path that's going to lead to anything good, he then he also experiments with hypnosis. He goes to France and studies uh hypnosis uh and and eventually he comes across what is called the talking cure, which we of course we all know as psychoanalysis. And one of the brilliant things about Freud was that, that he branded it. So he came up with the term psychoanalysis and, and, and really began realized this might be wh- what helps the people who in those days were called hysterics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the terms were not politically correct right. in any of this, in those days. And, And he begins to develop this whole notion. And it starts, of course, with one of his most famous papers on the interpretation of dreams and the the whole idea of the subconscious, how it influences not only your dreams, but your behavior and so forth, was very startling and shocking to people. And he was seen as a bit of a a, a quirky character in those Mm -hmm. days and much of the medical establishment in Vienna. Uh, sort of uh, look look down their noses on uh, at him, but very soon that began to change. Mm-hmm. But but it, it but it was it wasn't an easy struggle. And yeah. it's interesting also. I'll just make one other point that the way he the, the what really propelled him to 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 what was psychoanalysis was the need to get out of the laboratory. Because he had he became engaged to Martha, who was from Hamburg in northern Germany. He didn't have enough money to move out of his parents' apartment, and and he, and finally his mentor at the University of Vienna said, "You've got to become get get the skills to be do some work in a hospital and then start a private practice that might be a little bit more lucrative." Mm-hmm. And that's when he gets on that path. That eventually, a private practice becomes finally the famous couch, a
1: Freudian couch. Now, it's interesting when you talk about, I mean, he's known for the, the, the cocaine interest, uh, but the fact that it, it it dissipated very quickly. It's a little bit like Timothy Leary, you know, getting started with LSD and then, you know, eventually going on to, to do something extremely interesting and famous. That's not what people would think of at the beginning of Freud's career. So, um, yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and a little different, I'd say, career trajectory than timothy leary (laughs) yeah
1: yeah quite quite a bit different (laughs) Uh, he must not have sampled enough of the of the product Uh, (laughs) so um so he moves into the private practice and 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 as you just said like most men was uh, was motivated to move there by the need to create a family and to have the money for it um and so he he moves out and he starts a private practice but he doesn't get going very quickly either i mean it's not it's not an immediate success so why don't you talk about a little bit about what happened as he developed his his uh, reputation his books obviously were a big part of that so
2: his books were a big part of
1: it his it, and what was a
2: big part of it early on was this embryonic network of people who really bought into his theories. Mm -hmm. At first it was what was called the Vienna psychoanalytic uh, circle, which was a group that literally met in his quarters on Wednesday evenings. And they would be uh, around the table and they would talk about their writings, their patients, their theories. And Freud was, was, was of course the mover of all of that. Mm -hmm. But very, from a very early age, Freud had this vision that I want to move beyond Vienna and Budapest, which was the other place where, where, where many of his colleagues came from. And, and he, and he was delighted when there began to be expressions of interest from elsewhere. For instance, from, from England, there was, there was a Welsh doctor, a young Welsh doctor by the name of Ernest Jones who was so enthralled by reading the early papers of, of Freud in German, by the way. This uh, Jones had some German. It wasn't great. He was so excited that he actually got a German tutor uh, to read more. In those days, Freud's works have not been translated. And he 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 met Jones, and eventually Jones becomes his major proponent in the English speaking world, and really and, and later the head of the International Psychoanalytical S- Society. And then others come to him as patients. Someone like Marie Bonaparte, who was uh, had a rather famous last name. Mm-hmm. She was her grandfather was the uh, brother of Napoleon
0: Bonaparte,
2: mm-hmm. uh, and she grew up in this 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 almost royal family, but it was not technically royalty. But the one of the most famous families in Europe, and she had married into into royalty. She was. She became the prince princess of Greece and Denmark since her husband was the prince prince of Greece and Denmark. And she came to Freud because of what? What a growing number of people came to Freud for was, of course, sexual problems mm-hmm. because he was the one who was acknowledging, who was making sexual issues the centerpiece of his understanding of human psychology and the subconscious.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And while that that. Uh, That that turned away many of the established medical profession. It attracted new followers and new patients like Marie Bonaparte, who was famous for having a string of lovers, including the prime minister of France, Mm -hmm. but feeling sexually frustrated and not to not to be uh, to to just just put it out there. Her frustration was she couldn't achieve orgasm. Mm -hmm. She felt there's a psychological problem here Mm -hmm. in Freud met her, and then she becomes not only his patient, but then a, a follower, a supporter, and a psychoanalyst in and of herself. So this, this is he's beginning to form, make these kinds of connections that would play a huge role in his life, and then later, of course, in his escape from Vienna.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, it, as is often the case in these situations, he did something so significant that shifted their life that they were yes. ready to, to 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 take all kinds of risks uh for him uh when he yes. needed help so ernest uh, let's go back to ernest jones for a little while because he was a little problematic character he wasn't he <laughs> wasn't uh, particularly uh you know on the up and up too uh not not, not that he was dishonest but he had problems uh, in with his profession in england
2: yes well ernest jones who was all of 5 foot 4 and who, as one of his female colleagues said, he was irresistible to women.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, he also seemed to be irresistible to scandals.
0: Mm-hmm. And new,
2: <laughs> had numerous, numerous patients, female patients, accused him of all sorts of things, and some very young patients. Uh, and, and, and as my editor told me when I, when I showed him my chapter on Ernest Jones, introducing Ernest Jones, he said, was well, a good thing he didn't live in the Me Too age, uh, <laughs> because he certainly would not have survived it. No. But, but he, uh, a lot of these were accusations that were, uh, were very much again that he said she said, and w- with patients who were severely emotionally troubled, mm-hmm. and so he often got the benefit of the doubt, but eventually did lose found himself unemployable in London, and for that reason, moved to, and took a job in Toronto, spent some time in the States before coming back. But it's interesting also, Freud's attitude on that. He Freud had very early on developed this theory of transference, saying it is only natural that patients who are, are uh, patients who are we're trying to deal with their emotional problems often transfer their affections uh, that they feel to someone else to the to the therapist, uh, to the analyst. And, and Freud himself, who was very, in his personal life, contrary to a lot of the people around him, was very straight-laced. He was married to Martha his entire life, 53 years. Uh, and, uh, and, and at one point, he, he told, I think, Marie Bonaparte, he said, I I am all for this greater, greater sexual freedom. uh, Less hypocrisy, but I have very little use for it myself.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So
2: so it's interesting that he had a a different lifestyle than most of the people who naturally gravitated to him. Mm -hmm. But he believed in this theory of transference. And once, as a young doctor, he remembered a a female patient sort of threw her arms around him and hugged him tightly. And he was really put off by this.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: he said, you know, I, it, it's, it's just a risk of our trade. And he tre- treated all these accusations against Jones the same ways you've been suffering from transference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand that. And I'm not going, and, and I'm not going to misjudge you because of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, to, to transfer the, that idea about transference to the current time. Um, when, when, when the me too first came out, it was, everyone said, just believe everybody, believe all women because et cetera. But, you know, I'm sure Floyd would have been sitting in the background and said, just wait a second. Well, and, yes. No, uh, and I, I think, don't think
2: Freud would have, would have accepted that. In, in, no, no,
1: no. And then, and then the Johnny Depp trial probably, uh, you know, made things shift a little bit for everybody. Um, you know, that maybe everything that's said is not accurate. Um, like all those things, uh, including what Freud did, you, know, you want to push the pendulum pretty far so that you can get past the status quo and, and, uh, and, and get something that has been a terrible problem for a long time and push it out and, and say, we have to look at this differently. So yes. the idea is a great idea, but, but, uh, but absolutes in any idea don't work too well. Like, you know, just believe everybody. Because as soon as everybody believes that you're going to believe them, then, then the line begins.
2: Yes. And Freud did not believe in those kinds of absolutes. He did not believe in political absolutes. He was very, he always said, I'm not political at all. I'm just, I'm just interested in in psychoanalysis. But in fact, he did, he was very scathing, for instance, about the Bolshevik revolution mm-hmm. and the communist ideology, a lot of young Americans who came to him as patients were sympathetic in those days. That was kind of the radical chic thing to do, mm-hmm. to be, say, oh, well, those Bolsheviks, yeah, maybe they're dictatorial now, but it's only a step towards the uh, the, the more enlightened uh, socialist society. And he had none of that. He said, yeah, you need freedom of expression, which you know, socialism, communism does not give you, and 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 you cannot have these absolutes. And he, of course, he was the same way about the Nazi ideology. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, in I like that sense, speech. you wanted he wanted genuine free speech. Let us say, put it in today's terms.
1: Right. You have a quote uh, where where one of those uh, young Americans, having come back from the Soviet Union, is explaining that the Bolsheviks are really well meaning, but that they have to do this. And he said, yes, they're always promising that everything will be better in the future, that we'll get the freedom in the future. He said, it just reminds me of religion, where they promise you that everything will happen in another world. He says, I want it to happen right now here. Yes. Don't, don't tell yes, me about the yeah. future.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you have to remember also about Freud, a good point about religion. Freud was, of course, from a Jewish family, but he was not religious at all. Mm-hmm. He, he never, he always... uh uh, felt that he he never wanted to run away from his Jewish identity and background and heritage, and he would stand up to anyone who was a visible anti-Semite. But he was was not a believer, mm-hmm. and so he did not believe in religious or political absolutes.
1: Yeah. Um, all right, so one of the interesting ideas that you had, and we're talking about politics right now in your book, was as things started to move towards uh, Nazi control of Germany, that you know, people foresaw that that was going to be a problem pretty you know, early on, even before he became prime minister, that this was becoming a problem. Um, Mussolini was already in charge uh, in, in Italy. Um, and, and Freud and the Austrians, or at least the Austrian parliament, were looking to Mussolini to protect them from Hitler. I think that was, that was a very interesting thing in your, in your book. And I, I think that very short window in which that was possible um, is usually skipped over in history uh, about the time. So why don't you explain it? Because I think that, that says a lot about what Austrians... I mean, Hitler wasn't Austrian himself. Um, so Yes, yes. So yes. that's, that's Hitler, also important. Hitler was
2: an Austrian. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't w- or resist an aside. When I, mm-hmm. I was spending a lot of time in Austria and Germany, when I was living in, in Germany, what was then West Germany, and there was a whole uh scandal about kurt baltheim the right. u.n secretary general and his and his past and his role in the, in the in the wehrmacht the german army and and the germans sort of had many of my german friends would say well finally austrian history is is being presented not like the sound of music <laughs> but uh and 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 the austrians had managed to convince the world that hitler was a German, and that Beethoven was an Austrian. <laughs> <laughs> it was a re- reverse. <laughs> um, so there's the 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 politics of this, yeah, in, in retrospect, it all seems very black black and white. For but for Austria, a small country which had been between the wars once had been a, a huge empire, Austrian Hungarian Empire, which which Freud grew up in, but after World War One was this what was considered pretty much a rump state. It was trying to pre- preserve its independence. And 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 as part of that, the Austrian leadership became they had their own brand of fascism and fascist mm-hmm. leaders, but they were trying to keep the Nazis at bay. And of course, at one point in 1934, they, the Nazis actually assassinated mm-hmm. the, the Austrian chancellor. But his successor continues to, to pledge to keep Austrian independence and, and, and their own kind of politics. And Freud put a great deal of stock in this. And, and yes, and early on, when when there was a sense that Mussolini, for various reasons, would want to protect Austrian independence, in part because, in in not to get too involved here in the politics, but mm-hmm. in the South Tyrol, in Italy, where there are many ethnic Germans, he did not want to have Hitler stirring them up. Mm-hmm. So he felt a buffer there might be might might be a good thing, but that was a very short window, of course, and uh, and of course Hitler's domination of that r- relationship between German fascism and Italian fascism uh, grew very quickly, and that that became no longer operative. But each of these things, Freud looked at and said, "Well, maybe this will allow Austria to survive as an as a state, even if it is a right wing." their uh, uh, state, uh, even if it is a dictatorship, but nothing on the order of of, of Hitler's Germany. That was his initial thought. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, Mussolini, uh, having come to power earlier, uh, looked like he was the stronger one for quite a while to people. But that, that, as you said, that did not last very long. Um, the interesting point about the buffer state that Austria was like a buffer state between Germany and Italy is, you know, at least for the current times, I'm sure this is the way that uh Putin is thinking about the ukraine and the uh, NATO and stuff like that um it's it's good to keep this history in mind at the same time so um so we have we have that going on and uh at, by that time Freud is very famous um and when we 're talking about the thirties he 's already seventy years old or so right or or yeah in, yes, the, yes. in so the he's 70s. he, he 's well
2: into his seventies he was born in eighteen fifty six so by right yeah he turns 80 in
1: in 19, 1936 1936 so uh, but when he was younger and he was developing uh, his his psychoanalytical group um he had mostly jewish followers in vienna um, and then carl jung uh, became interested from switzerland um a gentile and yes. they developed a relationship and jung was how much younger 10 15 20 years something like that oh
2: he was about uh, he was more than 20 years younger, mm-hmm. I think, uh, maybe 25. I don't remember the exact amount, but he was definitely the, uh, one generation down. And he and, and, he became the golden child very quickly in the group. Yes. You know, one thing about about Freud is even at a relatively young age, he was very obsessed with this notion of how long he was going to live. He would make all these calculations about how, how he might die. At one point, he was saying between the age of sixty-one and sixty-two, he would come up with these convoluted formulas based mm-hmm. on 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 what he on some of the family history of some of his uncles and so forth. Then he'd revise it backwards. But he was clearly obsessed with that, and he was clearly obsessed with the notion that he wanted this movement to become a broader movement. And that would out outlive him. so for that to happen to he needed if for it to be a broader movement, he was very conscious that most of his initial circle of friends from Vienna and Budapest were Jewish. Mm. Most of the people around that that those first table working groups in, in his apartment and office were Jewish. and And then so he wanted Gentiles involved because he knew given the anti-Semitism of the time, and if it was this was branded as a Jew, Jewish exercise, a Jewish science, mm-hmm. science, then its its reach could be limited. So he 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 was delighted when when he discovered that uh, that Carl Jung, this the, the, this Swiss psychiatrist uh, who was who was who was considered very promising and had his own institute. What, what was was interested in his writing, they started correspondence, they met, they hit it off. And immediately, Freud thinks of him as a as the crown prince, he actually calls him that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some of his Jewish colleagues are a little bit resentful. And, mm-hmm. and, and Freud's answer to them, well, look, this is this is very good news for us. If I simply appointed one of you to be the successor, and he was seen as a, the the face of, as, of the crown prince, then again, we will be limiting our reach, so you should be glad about that. Mm-hmm. So, but so this 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 very initial kind of love affair between Jung and and Freud is very strong because both want to make it work. Freud, Jung liked like the idea of of expanding his reach, and and Freud already was 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 a, a huge authority in his field, and. And and vice versa, Uh, Freud felt he was getting a really strong partner. But, of course, without getting into a long discussion between Freud and Jung, they're very two headstrong personalities. They clash very quickly, somewhat differing theories, different about all sorts of things. And that falls apart. And so that that, but then it's around that time. He also meets Ernest Jones, who's Mm. also a Gentile. Right. He's a, a Welshman. And that too is one of the attractions for Freud that 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 Jones is, is 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 a gentile, and and that relationship becomes a lifelong relationship and even beyond life because Ernest Jones becomes Freud's major biographer, first major biographer after his death.
1: So. Sounds a little bit like you know a, a personality cult, uh, but not, too, not not too strong because there 's a bunch of ideas behind it, and people usually get in, interested in the ideas more than the man, but the man is still central to the to the sets of ideas and um, but let 's talk now about this group of people who eventually you know become the major players, um, so you can tell the story about how they they Extracted Freud from Vienna in 1938 when he really didn't quite want to go. He, he really didn't want to leave. So, right. uh, but he's persuaded. Um, so first, his family. So uh, he has four children. He has his wife Martha, who you mentioned. There's a Mina Freud, who is uh, related. How, how is she related to? This?
2: She's the sister sister-in-law. She's Martha's
1: sister, Martha. but
2: had lived, lived with them for a long time.
1: Okay, um, and, then, <coughs> and then Martha and and Sigmund have four children. Um, no, they have actually have six children. Six, six children. children. Oh, okay. One, one who dies, the, who uh-huh. died in during the Spanish flu. So, uh, and the one that has the most influence over the situation is Anna. So we can talk about her a little bit.
2: Yeah, and she's the youngest too. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. Anna Freud
2: is is the one member of the family, one child who staged with her parents, with her father, uh, throughout all of this. The others. Grew up had got married, had had family, and some were clo- closer than others, but, but they were not part of the household. Anna stayed there. was totally dedicated to her father. And she becomes, first of all, when she's uh, a teenager, she starts sitting in on these discussions of the psychoanalytic circle. Mm-hmm. So already at age 14, 15, she's absorbing this. And she becomes a very famous child psycho- psychologist in her own right. And, and later on, she begins representing her father at conferences and, and other events when he is no longer able to go. And she also becomes almost his primary caregiver, even though he had various doctors and, and he had, had, had a maid at home who helped. She was the one who really took care of his needs he had to have multiple operations on his jaw starting in 1923. So for 15 years, he was going through very tortuous surgeries and had a prosthesis that he had to put in. And only Anna really could, could manage all that and know how to take this rather cumbersome device in and out of his mouth. Uh, so she was, she was the rock of, of his life. Uh, Martha was a rock in a different way his wife in terms of running the household the office and all the practical things but in terms of being an intellectual partner and and a lot of uh, personal care it was Anna And and so she is there and when the Nazis come and take over she takes charge as much as possible of dealing directly with the Nazis and shielding her father and I should just add One in conjunction with Anna, she is always portrayed as this rather lonely woman. Well, when in the 20s, she, a very rich American woman, comes to Vienna with her four very troubled kids. Her name's Dorothy Burlingham, her last name, her original name was Tiffany. Mm-hmm. And her grandfather was the head. It was a, was the founder of, of the Tiffany Company, mm-hmm. uh, Charles Tiffany, and her father was Louis Comfort Tiffany of the famous stained glass creations, and 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 Dorothy and Anna strike up a friendship, and then in effect they they live. As close to a, a, a life as a married couple as two women could in those days until the end of their lives. Mm-hmm. So, and 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 Dorothy, as an American, plays a role when all of this happened. When the Nazis come in, in maintaining ties with the American embassy and 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 and, and passing on information to the Americans about what what's happening with Freud when he is threatened.
1: Uh, we're discussing uh, "Saving Freud," a book by Andrew Negorski. And if you have any questions, uh, you can send them in through the chat room uh, to us, and we'll we'll ask them directly of the author of this book. So, um, this you know, when the Nazis came into Austria, within a day or two, they were in the Freud offices taking money and and et cetera, et cetera. And there's some, I mean, painful, but humorous stories i mean they they came into martin freud's office took the money and and unfortunately for all of them that came in stealing the money the the nazi organization took the money away from them so why, why don't you tell a little bit of the story of how the freuds first dealt with it because even after they came and took the money they still he still wasn't ready to leave
2: yes well remember when they this is 1938 when the Anschluss happens when Suddenly, Hitler, the, the, the German armies cross the border with no resistance. Austria collapses. And Hitler makes a speech literally a short walk away from the Freud's apartment and offices. And these Nazi thugs, who are not yet very well organized, are invade both the home and the office. And for instance, at the home, Martha Freud, the, Freud's wife, opens the door, sees this group of thugs, and she sort of disarms them by playing the polite hostess. She says, oh, won't the gentleman come in? And maybe you'd like to put your guns in the umbrella stand. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah they, 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 They're they not quite sure what to do. And by the way, uh, there's some money on the table. Would you like to take that? Help yourselves. Mm-hmm. And then she sends Anna, the daughter, to a safe in the back room where she pulls out the equivalent of about $800, which is a huge amount of money. And why don't you take this as well? Mm-hmm. And and that that all yeah the threat is obvious but they're trying to play it as cool as possible Mm -hmm. and at one point when they're when these thugs are collecting all this money sigmund freud who's now this old man and looking very severe he just comes out and glares at them doesn't Mm -hmm. say a word
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and these thugs Sort of cower a little bit and say, Herr Professor, Mister Professor,"
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and say,
2: "Oh, well, maybe we'll come back later. We will come back later." And mm-hmm. they slink out of the room, but with their loot. Mm-hmm. And and <laughs> here is again another aspect of Freud's personality. I think comes out in so many moments in in in, in his biography, which I picked, which which I try to show in the book. The family sits down, and and everyone is very shaken. And Anna is particularly shaken. In fact, she asked her her parents, and especially her father, shouldn't we all just commit suicide? Should we just commit mm-hmm. kill ourselves? Mm-hmm. And Freud's answer is no. Why? Because, because they want us to? You mm-hmm. know, in other words, he was always going to stand up, even though he had miscalculated and should have gotten out a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. And also He asked, well, how much money did they take when he heard how much money they took? And his answer was, I never took so much for a single visit. (laughs) (laughs) He just, even in the most dire circumstances, he could, his his sort of dry sense of humor would kick in. But, but of course, this was no joke. Uh, There was then, in those days, this is before the Holocaust, the anti-Semitic policies are clear. But what exactly is going to happen to rich Jewish families like the Freud's and especially prominent ones is unclear. Are they going to be looted and killed? Are they going to be looted and then kicked out, imprisoned? Who knew? So uh, they had to navigate this uncertain ter- terrain. And and, and that, that that's that whole, whole history where, first of all, as, as you say, Freud was still a little reluctant, thought, his son, Martin, said he, he thought, maybe this will pass. Maybe this is just a passing phase. But he was kidding. He, he knew he was deluding himself. Mm-hmm. And then when when the moment that really changed his mind was when Anna gets summoned by the Gestapo. Mm-hmm. And she is a couple of Gestapo cars come pick her up to drive her off. And she's gone for hours. They don't know. Is she coming back? What's happening over there? Finally, she comes back in the evening. And Freud is visibly shaken. And he at that point is desperate to get out. And he says basically to Jones and others, look, I, Martha and I are old. We might stick it out. We don't have much time left. But Anna has a lot of years ahead of her. She should have a lot of years ahead of her. I'm not going to deprive her of that. I know she'll never leave without me. So therefore, let's do everything to get out. And that's when everybody converges. Ernest Jones flies in from London. Marie Bonaparte comes in from Paris. William Bullitt, who's another character, the U.S. ambassador to France, who had, who had collaborated with Freud on a book about Woodrow Wilson, whom they both despised, by the way, <laughs> uh, uh, and was had his diplomats in Vienna monitoring the situation, actually parking an embassy car in front of the Freud building with an American flag on it uh, uh, up front. Because in those days, you still had the sense that Hitler didn't want to antagonize the whole world, especially the Americans so quickly. Mm -hmm. So they tried to play on that. So Mm -hmm. all of these people kicked into action. His personal doctor, Max Schur, who was a younger Jewish physician from Vienna, was taking care of Freud medically, but also
1: psychologically in some
2: ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you you, you should, had yeah. this. You
1: should tell the detail that, about Max Schur, he, this doctor, this young doctor. He had he had was sure that there was going to be a huge problem, and he got visas for his whole family to leave as early as 1937. But he wouldn't leave until Freud left. That's some dedication to to, to Freud.
2: Yes, and yeah, he had a young family, had two young children, and uh, by the way, his son Peter Schur, who is a doctor. I discovered was still in it, it was living in boston mm. it is living in boston uh-huh. on the board he's still still practicing and and on the board and, and at harvard medical school he's now close mm. to 90. yeah but uh he, he he has some memories of the child of the, of that year and, and how they got out but but yes max sure his father could have left with his family and he said, no, I'm going, he knew that also Freud would not live that long. He said, I'm not going to leave Freud. And also one thing about Max Schur, when when, when Freud took him on as his personal physician, he asked him, he said, I know I have cancer of the jaw. When it becomes unbearable, do you have to promise that you'll help me end it. And Sure delivered that promise and then made sure he he, he carried out that promise when that moment came later in London. So I think the other thing this all of this shows is that incredible attachment people felt towards Freud, mm-hmm. not only admiration for him, but genuine affection, uh, incredibly, incredibly strong ties. He, he, he was a difficult person. Many people call him prickly and arrogant. Mm-hmm. But the people who he developed the closest relationships with, it was, it, it was a mutual affection.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting part of your book um, is that his sense of humor, for example, as you mentioned, at times of stress was very crucial for everybody around him um, and that he, he he didn't fall apart himself um, and and I, I it, it reminded me a little bit of Ronald Reagan because you know lots of people didn't like him mm-hmm. you know, for his policies. But when he got shot and he made jokes about it, then he suddenly, you know, his popularity exceeded his ideas. You know, I mean, it, it, his ideas were ir- irrelevant at that point. And I'm sure that Freud must have got a little bit of that because a lot of people thought, well, that's one explanation, but that's a little bit too far out. I mean, I'm sure that was wh- when he first started talking about his ideas.
2: Yes, uh, well, he was... He, could, he was endearing. I mean, his ideas obviously were very strong, very mm-hmm. controversial. But just on a human level, his ability to use humor in a variety of ways, sometimes self-deprecating humor mm-hmm. too, uh, was, was, was very endearing.
1: Yeah. So this group goes into action. He makes his mind up. I'm going to leave because my daughter you know, needs to leave, and she won't leave without me, so I'm, we're going to get out of here. It's really quite a story. We don't have to go into all the details because they're in the book, you know, to be read. But you know, as you said, the American embassy got involved. This William Bullitt that you mentioned had had a someone that had, used to work for him in the Soviet Union when he was the ambassador there, who was now in Vienna, John Wiley, and he he would go over personally as a result of his boss telling him to, I'm sure, uh, and 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 sit outside or go inside, and and be a barrier to the Nazis. Um, but then they had to talk. The Nazi overseer, of of you know you you said in your book that that the Nazis appointed trustees of all the, the Jewish wealth basically or all the Jewish families, and so this one guy was appointed at Atom Sauerwald, yeah, something like that. Yes, yeah. and and, uh, and he what an interesting character he he turned out to be. Um, yes, like, he's you know he the most
2: surprising character I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yes, he takes Sauerwald, over and he's mean, you know, he starts off really mean and he doesn't stay that way.
2: Yes. I mean, <laughs> Sarabald, he comes in as a 35-year-old Nazi bureaucrat, really nasty, spewing anti-Semitic remarks. But after a while, he's sitting in the Freud apartment a lot of time going over all sorts of their, their supposed assets, finances, but he's also picking up Freud's writings. Mm hmm. He's clearly impressed by them. And and Sauerwald was a graduate of the University of Vienna. He studied chemistry. And it turned out he had studied chemistry with an older Jewish professor who had died since, but who had been a friend of Freud. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it appeared that Sauerwald identified Freud with his former Jewish professor, mm-hmm. which made him see him as the exception to, let us say, his his anti-semitic uh, beliefs and 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 at a certain point these these overseers, these trustees as they were called, had a great deal of discretion because as I mentioned in the beginning, the rules were not yet set
0: mm-hmm.
2: in terms of it wasn't a question of just how much money would be extorted, but then what would happen and Freud was vulnerable on on a level because he had a number of foreign patients. He had managed to build up quite a clientele of patients from the United States, in particular, and from Britain, in particular, where who were able to also pay in hard currency, which was highly valued. Mm-hmm. And because of that, he had foreign bank accounts, which had been perfectly legal until the Anschluss, but instantly illegal after the Anschluss. Mm-hmm. And of course, Freud did not talk about it, or Anna didn't, but but Sauerwald, as he was doing his, as he was. Sort of examining all the books and talking to people, realized that. And if he had told his higher ups about this, that might have been enough to, to just for them to veto his departure and say,
0: mm-hmm.
2: he just deserves to be incarcerated or at least held here or not given a visa. Mm-hmm. And he stayed quiet until the Freuds were allowed to leave, mm-hmm. which is a remarkable sin of omission or, mm-hmm. or, let us say, an act of grace by omission. Uh, and Anna Freud later on said that, that that was a key moment, that without that, they may, may not have gotten out. And and one thing that's worth pointing out is you and people say, well, Freud was so well-known, he would not have died in the Holocaust. Well, four of his sisters who stayed behind
1: all died in the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. And there are plenty of famous people that died in the Holocaust. It's not, not yeah. They might have made a... a... An example of him rather than, you know, an exception of him. It, it could yes, it could have way. worked either way. Yeah. So um, there's an interesting little epilogue to that Anton Sorowell story, which was after the war, when he was being prosecuted for what he did as a Nazi, that one of the Freud uh, grandchildren or whatever. Uh, it, was, it was
2: a nephew, I think. A yes, nephew. Yeah.
1: Who wa- wanted to attack him and, and, and have him done. But Anna Freud stepped in and said, no, no he whatever else he did he helped us
2: yes, yes it was henry freud who was who was who was a nephew i think who had later on served in, actually in the american army mm-hmm. uh believed he, he he wanted to to basically testify for the prosecution mm-hmm. and Anna Freud wrote a letter to uh, to Sauerwald's wife and, and that she used to help defend her husband and eventually get him freed
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, interesting uh, bedfellows, as they say, the situation is made. Um, so uh, so their trustee looked like it was going to be a terror, ended up liking them enough to, to look the other way and let them go. Um, and they, they got these visas, but they weren't happy until they crossed the, the French border. I mean, they, they, they never felt they could it could change at any moment. But it was not just him. How many people went? Uh, it was quite a big group. Yes, it was.
2: I mean, they didn't all go at once, but Ernest Jones, by the way, again not to—he not only helped convince Freud to leave, but he made it his mission to go back to Britain and get entry permits for for, for every member of the Freud family who was still in Austria who mm-hmm. wanted to go, and then for Max Max Schur and his and his and his kids, and his wife and kids, and for for one or two uh, for a housekeeper. And and a couple of other friends, close relatives, which meant it was a party that eventually. I think he had, in the end he got something like twenty-four entry pro- permits to Britain. Mm-hmm. Now in those in nineteen thirty-eight, Britain and almost every other country in Western Europe, including the U.S., by the way, mm-hmm. was not eager for Jewish refugees from the Third Reich. Right. To put it mildly, Jones used every connection in the book to pull it off, and that's another reason I think the Whatever other his other proclivities, I think he proved himself to be an incredibly loyal friend mm-hmm. and and, and uh, very instrumental in, in saving Freud and and this whole party of people
1: yeah, how he got the, the the British passes uh you know to come in was also interesting. He went to a friend who went to a friend who knew the prime minister, something like that right
2: was, yeah was, yeah it was a whole series of relationships of people mm-hmm. in the Royal Society of Medicine. Uh, people he who knew he knew in the government through his ice skating club. It was right. it was a very British story too. Yeah, the very right British clubs. Story. The right connections.
1: <laughs> 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 it's it's not what you know; it's who you know. That was a perfect example of that. Oh yes, yeah. yes. And then and then and, how you
2: exploit that
1: and how you exploit it. I, I thought another great part of the story was Marie Bonaparte uh, being the Princess of Greece and Denmark, um, wearing her kind of. Claire, I mean, making it clear that she's a princess and she would sit on the staircase in Freud's house so that if the whenever the Nazis came in, they really wouldn't push past her because she was. Serious. Yeah, well,
2: they had to go past her, but they felt very intimidated. And the yeah. whole idea was just like the American embassy car down mm-hmm. below in the courtyard with the flag there and say, we're all washing. Yeah, the the diplomatic community is washing. This man is too important to just disappear in this newly newly uh, uh, occupied country, so and Marie Bonaparte was very instrumental in that, and she was instrumental in it and so many other things. She she would go in and she would literally grab various documents and and some of his art. Uh, Freud loved to collect all sorts of of, of small sculptures and statues from uh, Greek, Roman, Etruscan. And mm-hmm. she would each time under her skirt would carry out some of this stuff
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, 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 and then deposit it in the Greek embassy and, ha- and then it would go out by diplomatic pouch. So as a result, if you if you when you go see the Freud Museum in Vienna these days, which is his old apartment and office, mm-hmm. is very sparsely uh, uh, there's a very sparsely um, uh, uh, decorated there are very few of his original belongings it's interesting but it's a, but all, most of that stuff eventually shows up in london
0: mm-hmm.
2: and you go to the freud house in london where he lived the last 15 months of his life and it has his original couch he's it's got almost all uh, a huge amount of of his of his sculptures and artwork it's a mass mm-hmm. so so and that for a large extent was marie bonaparte she also put up the most money to, mm-hmm. to pay the bribes for for the Nazis,
1: right? I was going to say that uh, her money got involved, um, and eventually he he wanted to pay her back. I mean, uh, well, what was the yeah?
2: Yes, he he insisted when he was in a position to do so to pay back as much as he could.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, Dorothy uh, Anna's uh, friend, who was uh, Freud's uh, student and so on, or or, or client, she also uh, used her money to to help things.
2: Yes, on. Dorothy Birmingham Tiffany was also. He did whatever she could to help not only uh, uh, Anna Freud, who became her partner but 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 the whole family and mm-hmm. for instance uh, her Freud's sister-in-law had gotten very ill and she actually escorted her out to Switzerland earlier before the rest of the party mm-hmm.
1: yeah um, this small circle I mean eventually Ernest Jones uh, who was the the doctor from uh, from the Welsh doctor. Yes. He, he eventually became uh, extremely important in the psychoanalytic community. Was that was that while Freud was still alive, or after he was uh, had passed?
2: Oh no, while he was still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, and and he
1: in effect became the the successor
2: um, to uh, you, you know to our our uh, our Swiss doctor who had mm-hmm. fallen out of sorts with Carl Jung with 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 Freud, and and Carl Jung had become. At first was the first one of the first, I think the first or yeah, I think the first president of what when they formed this international psychoanalytic society mm-hmm. and then they had annual, annual conventions and then Jones repeatedly took on that role. So he was not only he founded the, the British psychoanalytic society, but he was a, a moving force of the international movement. And he also uh, set up a, a whole press operation in Britain. To publish uh, Freud's works, uh, which incidentally was was tied to uh, Leonard Wolfe, the husband of Virginia Wolf. right? Uh, the famous. There, it, it, one of the thing. Other interesting things is that everybody wanted to meet Freud. Everyone wanted to. Uh, so you have. Virginia Woolf, H.G. Wells, Salvador Dali, they all sort of pop in and out of the picture. <laughs> and, it, and it's its amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, through Freud in a circle, you get a whole
1: window on the cultural and intellectual life of that period. Yeah, you'd wonder, nowadays, I mean, people put their own uh, information about what's going on in their psyche on the internet themselves. But I'm sure that some of these famous people were not you know, uh, thinking ahead and saying this guy's going to be so famous that everyone's going to find out what we <laughs> what we said to them. I mean, there's the story about Ernst uh, uh, Jones um, uh, doing psychoanalysis for D.H. Lawrence and his wife. Which, yes, yes, which yeah, is, you know, yeah, that's right. That's another on, yeah. one. That, yeah,
2: that he. He was fascinated by D.H. Lawrence and his wife, but I think eventually he said, oh, my God, this is too much for any psychoanalyst to deal with.
1: It it, it created quite a few interesting novels, but it wasn't fun to live, apparently.
2: Yes, yes. For the creative (laughs) process, it was good, but for normal human interaction, it would prove unbearable. Unbearable,
1: yes. Um, So we have one coming from uh, 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 one of our uh, listeners, uh, Dr. Nancy. Um, I can't get to it right now, but I know what it is. Basically, she said she's not a fan of Freud. She prefers Carl Jung. So <laughs> in this story, you know, I mean, that 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 was part of it. But why don't we talk just a little bit uh, for how they split? Because they did split on a little bit personality clash, but also ideas. You know, Freud wanted yes. him to, to say, no, the way I look at this is better than the way you look at it. That didn't go over. So which ideas yes. did they kind of split on uh, on a basic yes. thing?
2: Well, I think there were a number of things. Yeah, as you say, it's personality, leadership, and 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 Freud was pretty absolute that the people in his movement he wanted them to accept the basic principles. Mm-hmm. And the basic principle, yeah, this is vastly oversimplifying, but Freud's emphasis on sexuality mm-hmm. as the driving force of so much of human behavior, mm-hmm. and and Jung felt. He was over overdoing that, and right in the beginning, even when they were in kind of their honeymoon phase, Jung would say, "Well, I I reserve, yeah, I, I'm I'm in awe of your ideas and your 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 theories, but I would reserve some judgment on that issue." Mm-hmm. So that was one of them. Also, uh, Freud believed that Jung was a little too mystical for him at times. Mm-hmm. That uh, his his interest in In what were called uh, in those days, primitive cultures sort of veered into 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 kind of mystery and and uh, uh, fantasy. Uh, So there were there were these ideas. I'm not doing justice to them at all, but they were that that departure. And, but I would say at the core of it, always with Freud and some of his early breaks with some of his mentors were on the same subject was basically how much emphasis do you put on how sexuality from a very early age defines our personalities Yeah, it's,
1: and the pe- people we become. It's interesting because they're both, I mean, and the same thing is, has been said about Jung now, too. I mean, there's too much emphasis on symbolism or mysticism, just like Freud said. And yes. what Jung said about Freud, also people think today, too much emphasis on sexuality. So they both had relatively good criticisms of each other. Um, yes. Because, at, least, at least posterity has, has made the same judgments about both of them, um, but both still extremely influential um, in helping us try to understand what is going on inside of our minds when we're sleeping, yeah. and among I, I, other I, I, things, you know?
2: Right. And I would say, yeah, I've talked to many psychiatrists who say, well, I've, Freud's ideas are out of date. I don't really follow them. Mm. Well, I would say, yes, there are different theories, different different uh, iterations, but you, everybody takes, whether consciously or subconsciously to use these mm-hmm. terms, Takes Freud's ideas as a starting point, yeah, and 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 a lot of his ideas, which which now we all internalize the notion that dreams can mean something, that our subconscious works in ways that is not necessarily rational, but does express a lot of a lot of the impulses that we that that are within us. Uh, those things, I think, really defined him and continue to have a huge influence, even if sort of, let's say, the theoretical construct around whatever theories that, that are evolved, the, the next iterations of those theories that evolve have changed. I think the impact of Freud was tremendous. And Jung, too, but I would say Freud more so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe I'm just partial because I wrote a book about <laughs> Freud.
1: <laughs> Projecting. no it's uh, at this time i always like to mention about newton i mean uh, newton obviously his ideas in in physics have been extremely influential but he also had a whole bunch of ideas about the numerology of the bible and a bunch of other things that everybody has ignored you know ever since uh you know and he spent more time on them than he spent on the physics so yes uh, and
2: just by the way mentioning
1: newton yeah
2: one of freud's real Real satisfactions when he came to London. To his to his surprise, I mean, he had always been an Anglophile of sorts. He'd only mm-hmm. visited once as a young man, and and but he really liked England as opposed to the United States, by the way. But that's, <laughs> that's a whole different story. But he was an Anglophile. But one of his proudest moments when he came to England, and he was treated as a really a celebrity. He was everybody was coming to see him, honoring him. But the biggest honor was in the Royal Society. Uh, elected him, uh, asked him to sign their charter book. Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and he signs this book, and uh, he signs it very close to the signatures of Charles Darwin and Isaac Newton. Yeah. And you can say, all right, both men, you can say agree or disagree with parts of their theories, but to be in that league felt pretty good. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I think regardless of what people think about you know uh, all of his overall theories he's still he's still in that league considered in that league of of people whose whose thoughts have influenced us and you know if you just think about some of the basic ideas as you said the unconscious has an influence that we don't pay attention to and that um even the development of ideas like projection as i mentioned a little earlier I mean projection is such a big idea about how just- we express ourselves in life and explains things that people didn't think about before so that's just you know all he'd have to do is that one idea, and he would, you know, that would be enough uh, on the unconscious. So, thank you very much for both writing the book and for joining us at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, we really appreciate your your insights, and uh, the book itself is a great read. So, thank, thank you very much. And, thank you uh, very much, George. It's been a pleasure. It has. And uh, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in our 120th year of enlightened discussion. Uh, we hope to see you at the club soon. We're now open for in-person programs quite often. Thanks again, Andrew. It was really a good discussion. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've
0: been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate.